Welcome to Redemption Church. You're listening to our weekly podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Well, all right, guys, if you got your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Titus. That's where we're working at. Um, we're in the middle of a five-week series walking through, verse by verse, the book of Titus, taking a look at what it means for us as a church to center our lives around Jesus and then to live for the glory of God and the good of others. So we're in Titus. Um, if you're a guest here, I want to say thank you so much for gathering with us. Um, we're really happy and excited that you're here. So while you're flipping there, finding your spot, we're in Titus 1.9 through chapter 2.1. Um, I'm going to open us up in prayer, and then we're going to get to work. Cool? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this church. Lord Jesus, you build your church. You promised that, and we're seeing that come um, happen right in front of our very eyes. God, I thank you for your word that is true, that points us to who you are, and gives us good gospel instruction on how we are to live. I pray that um, these words would be encouraging words. Um, to those who are in this room, so that they might know you and that they might live according to um, what you have called them to do. Lord, I thank you for all of this. I praise you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. So what was the most difficult conversation that you ever had? I want you to think about that. What was the most difficult conversation that you ever had? Do you remember that conversation, okay? Close your eyes, imagine that conversation, so was it a good conversation or was it a bad conversation? Right? Did you leave feeling encouraged or did you leave feeling discouraged? Did you feel um, beat up or did you feel built up? Right? Were you the guy who was delivering the conversation or were you on the receiving end? What was the most difficult conversation that you ever had? What was it centered around? Was it a relational conversation? Did it have to do with a husband or a wife or a boyfriend, girlfriend? Was it a, a best friend? Was it a child? Was it a parent? Was it a relational conversation? Was it work or school related? Was it financial? Okay. Or was it a spiritual conversation? Did you sin or did someone sin against you? What was the most difficult conversation that you ever had? Okay. How, how did you respond? Okay. Did you overreact or did you receive? Did you reject or did you reflect on that conversation? Did you run away or did you repent? What is the most difficult conversation that you ever had? Today is going to be like that. Today is going to be, for some, a very difficult conversation. But where there is no confrontation, there is no reconciliation. That we have to confront some ideas so that way we can be reconciled to the love of the Father and to the truth of our beliefs. And so, like a family, we have difficult conversations. Sometimes we need to have these. But where there is no encouragement, there is no gospel being preached. So I'm going to confront some ideas, and then I'm going to encourage you on the back end. And like I said, we are family. And sometimes family does have these difficult conversations. But we need to listen, to learn, to lean in, so that way we can be able to love one another well. And that we do all of this for the glory of God and the good of others. So I just wanted to brace yourselves for that. There's a saying that says, soft words make soft people, but tough words make tough people. And by God's grace, we will grow in his glory and goodness. And so if you got your Bibles, we're in Titus, and we're going to read it all up front. We're going to talk about a couple of things, then I'm going to unpack it for us. So we're in Titus chapter 1. This is what he says. 
Starting in nine, he, being the elder that we discussed last week, must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. There's our word for the day, doctrine. And he also must rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And this testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be in sound faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths or to commands of people who turn them away from the faith. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and to the unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both in their minds, in their consciousness, they are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him with their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. But as for you, Teach what is in accords with sound doctrine. Okay, I want to kind of flesh this out a little bit. Um, We talked about it some in week one, but I want to unpack it because it's good for us to to remember exactly where it is that we're going. So what's important to note that when you read the Bible, the Bible is not about you. The Bible is about Jesus. It's important to know that when you read the Bible, it's not even written to you, but rather it's written for you. Okay, this section of scripture in the book of Titus is written to a young pastor church planter named Titus. And all Titus wanted to do was to see his church grow, to see people meet Jesus. And those are sound like good novel ideas, right? And so over time, the church began to lose its way. And then he receives a letter from his pastor, because every pastor needs a pastor. And he sends a letter from his pastor named Paul. Okay, and he gets this letter of encouragement, of gospel instruction to be able to put their church in order. And now Paul was a missionary church planter who traveled all around the ancient world starting these new churches. So as he started new churches, he also wrote different books of the Bible. And as he traveled around, he did so with two other young men, one named Timothy and the other named Titus. They, they went into a city called Crete, which is where we're at, and they planted this church. After a while, everything was going well, and then Timothy and Paul moved on to the city of Ephesus, and they installed Titus as the lead pastor of this church. So everything was going well for a while. There was lots of people meeting Jesus. The church was growing, but somewhere along the way, it fell into division, and so Titus engages in this division through the letter of his pastor Paul to be able to see gospel growth for the glory of God and the good of others. See, Titus is, Titus is kind of a, a big deal, right? Titus is a very important person in the history of the Christian faith, which is kind of a shame that we don't talk about Titus as much as we should, considering that Titus's story and his testimony is one of the reasons that it is that we believe what we believe as Christians, And in addition to that, what Titus accomplished in the church of Crete still serves as the the governing order, the structure, the ecclesiological gathering methods of us still as a church today. So Titus is kind kind of a big deal. Titus was bold, Titus was courageous, Titus was strong, and Titus's story changed the world forever. And let me tell you how. And we saw in week one, and we see it again today, that as the church started to grow, There was two different types of people that entered into the church to sow division, right? The first group was known as the Judaizers. And then the second group was a group of men known as the Gnostics, 
Right? First, we'll look at the Judaizers. Now, the Judaizers were a group of men who said that in order to be saved, before Jesus can save you, you must convert to Judaism before you can become a Christian. So that means in order to be saved, you must do these works, follow these rules, these regulations, these laws and ceremonial customs, namely the custom of circumcision. And that's how they got their name. They were called the circumcision party, which as a side note, doesn't sound like a fun party. Not very good. So that's how they got their name. And these guys were in constant conflict with Paul throughout all of his life and ministry. And this is actually a very popular belief in the first Christian church, that you must convert to Judaism before you can become a Christian. It was very popular up until Paul traveled to Jerusalem to the Council of Judea, where all the churches were birthed out of, and he brought our boy Titus to the Council of Judea, and he presents Titus as an example of faith. See, Timothy and Titus both were non-Jewish, Greek, pagan converts to Christianity. And, and they didn't do any works. It wasn't because of who they were. It wasn't because of what they have done, but it was all because of Jesus. And so Paul brings Titus before the church and the council and says, look at Titus. Titus is an example that we are saved by grace, through faith, by Jesus to God. Not based on our works, not based on our good deeds, not based on what we have done, but all because of who he is. That is the testimony of Titus. And on that day, at that council, the doctrine of salvation was established. But really, that's the testimony that we see all throughout the, the New Testament scriptures, saved by grace, through faith, not by our works. And so as this group of men came into the church, Titus has already dealt with these guys. Titus knows what he's up against when it comes to the Judaizers. But there's a second group of men that come into the church, and they were known as the Gnostics. Okay, here's what the Gnostics believed. They were a, uh, a Jewish sect that broke off probably about the same time as Christianity, and they, they followed others around to infiltrate in the church. And this is what the Gnostics believed. They believed that um, the soul was perfect and pure, and that the only way to set the soul free was to follow your lustful appetites and seek out your greatest fantasies and desires. Okay, they believed that we were saved by secret knowledge. That's where they get the word Gnostic. So we obtain this secret knowledge, we become one with the cosmic universe by releasing ourselves, by pursuing our greatest fantasies, passions, and desires. So the Gnostics, they didn't, they didn't believe in the scripture as God's word, but they did teach it as a good word. They didn't believe in the resurrection, but rather they believed in reincarnation. They didn't believe in sin, but rather they believed in the divine self. And by pursuing these lustful desires, you therefore set your soul free. And this is what the Gnostics teach. And I want you to notice this, because this is so important, okay? That it's so easy for us to twist the truth. It's so easy to twist the truth. It's one slight bend here. It's one little omission there. It's one compromise after the next. And pretty soon before you know it, you've given in to lies, deceit, division, and error. 95% of the truth is 100% a lie. Do you know that? 95% of the truth is 100% of a lie. And if you are not devoted to sound doctrine, if you are not learning the truth and living it out in your daily lives, then you're going to fall victim to lies. And, and Satan, the evil one, he is the father of lies. So I don't know if you know this or not. He's pretty good at him. 
And he's been telling lies for a very long time. And here's how he gets this. It's like baiting a hook. Okay, he knows you're not going to go for the big lie. So what he does is, is he gives you a bunch of little ones. Well, that's opinion. You know, that's not really what that means. Nobody's going to notice. Nobody's going to get hurt. In the end, it's going to be okay. Lies. He knows you're not going to go for the big lie. So what he does is he adds a lure to it. Something that makes it seem attractive. And pretty soon, before you know it, you fall for the lie, hook, line, and sinker. And here's how it happened for the church there. A young church that was passionate about Jesus, that wanted to see people get saved without godly leaders and good doctrine, they fell victim to the lies of false teachers and false gospels. Without good godly leaders and devotion to sound doctrine, they fell victim to lies of false doctrines and false gospels. And I want you to see this, that both the Gnostics and the Judaizers used scripture and Christian teachings to twist, to manipulate, and to divide the church. It's so easy for us to lose our focus. And I think this is why in the Gospels, Jesus says, the road to life is the narrow road. Okay? In Matthew chapter, I've taught you guys about the road, right? In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says, the road to life is the narrow road, but wide is the road that leads to destruction. Okay, so we call it the, the Jesus road. Okay, so think about the road, right? Jesus road, it's a narrow road. There's typically two ditches on a narrow road. But when it comes to a highway, um, how many ditches are on a highway? None, right? Because it's wide, massive roads, multiple lanes, cars going really fast, heading towards destruction. So atheism's a road, agnosticism's a road, Islam's a road, pantheism's a road, Wiccan's a road, etc., right? Massive lanes going really fast, heading towards destruction. Now, there's no ditches on a highway. But when it comes to the Christian faith, it's a Jesus road. So it's a narrow road. Think of it like a neighborhood street or a country road. How many ditches are on a small road? Two. I know it's an illustration. It's not always two. Work with me, okay? (laughs) And so if you're not paying attention, when the road curves... When the road gets rocky, when it gets dark, if you're not paying attention, what happens? You get in a ditch. You fall into a ditch. Now, some people, they they fall into the ditch, and we help them out. We get them out of the ditch. We give them a tow. We put them on the Jesus road. Hey, everything's fine. We're going to work together on this. Some people go into a ditch, crash and burn. Some people hop the ditch, hop the curb, and they're just driving somewhere off in the woods, and you're like, what the heck is going on with that guy? Some people, to quote the great postmodern philosopher Doc Brown in his seminal work, Back to the Future, where we're going, we don't need roads. Right? That's, that's heresy. Okay? Just saying. Nevertheless, my job as your pastor is to get you out of the ditch and onto the Jesus road. That's my job. And so that's what we want to do for us, to get us out of the ditch and onto the Jesus, the Jesus road. Now, I know what you're thinking. After 2,000 years, the church finally got its act together. Alas, no. We still got work to do. I know you think, well, we must have figured this out. We haven't. We still have things that we must work on when it comes to living a life on the Jesus road. And what's important to know before we jump into this is this is what both the Gnostics and the Judaizers did. They took one aspect of God and they elevated it above all other aspects. 
They took one aspect of who God is, God's nature, God's character, and they elevated it above all other aspects of God. And so the, when your one thing becomes the only thing, then you're going to miss everything. Right? Whatever your one thing is, when that one thing becomes the only thing, then you're going to miss everything. For the Gnostics, it was Jesus plus your good works. For the, for the, for the Judaizers, it was Jesus minus your good works. But if you add to or take away from Jesus, then you get no Jesus at all. That you cannot add to nor take away. And when your one thing becomes the only thing, then you've missed everything. And the American church still has these same struggles today. And so what I want us to do, is I want to take some time and I want to address some false gospels, some false teachings that I see that are damaging the American church, that are hurting our witness and preventing other people from meeting Jesus. Okay, causing division in the church. Because we still have some of the same problems that the church in Crete had. So let's just take some time and, and just walk through some of these so we can have good doctrine and godly lives. So the first one is the religion gospel. Okay, what this teaches is that religion saves. We're saved because of our works. So if we do this, if we don't do that, if we act a certain way, then Jesus will save us. We've got to follow these rules, these regulations, and if we don't, we're out. And so those who hold to this religious gospel are very strict. They're very religious. So you've got to pray a certain way, you've got to dress a certain way, you've got to read a certain translation of the Bible, and if you don't, then you're going to lose your salvation. What do you guys think about that? Do we believe that, that we're saved by our works? No. No. We're not saved by our works, but rather we are saved by grace. Now, here's the tricky part. Do we have works to do? Yes. See, they get it backwards. We're not saved by our works, but rather we're saved by grace, and by grace, through faith, we have work to do. See, the religion gospel gets it backwards. There's another one called the moralism gospel. So this means we're saved um, just by being good, decent, and moral people. That if you're good, if you're kind, if you smile, if you recycle, and if you just do your best, then in the end, everyone's going to make it. Just be a good, decent, good, moral person. What do you guys think? Are we saved by being good? No. No, because Jesus teaches that no one is good. No one is good apart from God. So our good deeds, no matter how good our intentions are, aren't enough to save us because you know you more than anyone else. And no one has let you down as much as you have. So you know where you stand in your good deeds. It's not good enough. But rather, we're not saved because we are good. We're saved because he is. So the moralism gospel, like the religion gospel, is a half-truth. And it will let you down. Number three is the prosperity gospel. This teaches that Jesus saves us to be healthy, happy, wealthy, and whole. And that if you give your life to Jesus, he will give you blessings, your best life, and a prosperous life. And, and so you can know that you truly have faith because your life has been set free from, from suffering. You'll have no pain. You'll have no poverty. And that's what the gospel does for you. Okay. Is, that, is that true? Yes or no? No, of course not. Right? Because if that's true, then Jesus wasn't even saved. Right? Because Jesus was homeless. And you do recognize we worship a homeless guy, Right? Okay, like Jesus couldn't pay his taxes. Jesus's, you know, best friends denied him. Jesus's family betrayed him. And that whole thing about being murdered on a cross, not very prosperous. Okay, so if your definition of the gospel isn't big enough to include God himself, you missed it. 
Now, are there blessings attached to living a life of faith? Yes, absolutely. As Christians, do we give to support the local church? Yes, absolutely. Does God provide out of his providence and his grace for his children? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. But we don't give to be loved. We give because we already are. That's the difference. They get it backwards. Number four is the self-help gospel. This says that Jesus died to make you a better person, right? That, That you're really not a sinner, but you just need some help to get back on path. All right, so here's seven simple ways for you to be a better person. And we do this all the time in the church, right? We say, okay, like, okay, um, we're going to do a series on, you know, we want people to feel more confident. We want to boost their self-esteem. You know, here's a sermon series, three simple steps to be the best dad that you can be, right? And now, are those things bad? No, they're not bad. But here's the difference. They're self-centered rather than Christ-centered. Is that it's focused on you, and it's not focused on him. And that's not enough to save you. What we must lean into is the sacrifice that Jesus has made and not trying to live our best life in that regards. It's the motive that's the difference. Number five is this. It's the signs and wonders gospel. Okay, this says that, that if you were truly saved and if you truly had enough faith, then you will be able to perform miracles, that you will heal others, and that you will, if you have enough faith, be healed yourself. Okay? Do you see the danger in that? It says, if you have enough faith. The danger in that is that it's based upon seeking the gifts rather than the giver. That's the danger. Now, do we believe in the gifts? Yes. Yes, we believe. Do we want to see gifts? Yes. Do we want to see miracles? Yes. Do we want to see healings? Yes. That's why we open up space at the end of the gathering to be able to pray for one another. And if God has something he wants to do for you, then he will do that as he sees fit. But here's the difference, guys, is that we don't chase signs and wonders. Signs and wonders follow us. They are to be expected of living a Christian life. It's just kind of what happens. And so we don't seek the the gifts over the giver. It's so subtle. If you miss it, then you miss everything. Number six is what's called the therapeutic gospel. This says that Jesus died to make you feel better. Jesus just died to make you special. So here's how it works. You've got a dull, boring, arduous life. You're middle class. You make a decent income, drive a decent car. But there's just something missing. There's just something missing. And so Jesus for you is an experience. So so Jesus for you is an escape from your everyday life. He he makes you feel good. It's it's an adventure. It's It's a journey. Now, do those things sound anti-gospel? Not at all. Those things are found within the gospel. That, that Jesus gives you new life, Jesus gives you new passions, new desires, new purpose, and a legacy for you to live your life by. All those things are great and good. But here's the subtle difference, is that this is Jesus as the meteor of your needs and not the savior of your soul. Number seven is the American gospel. This one's going to be fun. I saved this for number seven because I thought you might be asleep by now. Um, maybe this will wake you up, okay? The American gospel. God bless America. But have you ever noticed they don't say which God? Have you ever noticed that? They don't tell us which God. It's empty. It's, it's vague, and it's done so on purpose. So that way you can interpret it however you want. You can dump your own meanings into it, whatever you want. Right there, if you look on your money, it says, in God we trust. 
but it doesn't tell you which God. There's no mention of Jesus. There's no mention of the cross. There's no Holy Spirit. There's no resurrection. There's no Trinity. None of that. And it's vague, and it's done so on purpose. It's just God. So you can dump whatever meaning you want in it to make everyone feel included and welcomed. Right? And it's this idea of American exceptionalism. Okay? I want you to know that we are not necessarily exceptional, but rather we are an experiment. So in Paul's day, they had the circumcision party. And today, we still have parties. We just call them Republican Party, Democrat Party, Libertarian Party. Right? And it's a party, but nobody's having any fun. And if you notice, you'll see this a lot when you turn on the you know, social media, when you look on blogs, when you look on articles. Everyone wants to adopt the message of Jesus for their own agenda. Have you noticed this? So everyone has something to say. And they'll say, you know, Jesus was a socialist. Jesus was a capitalist. Jesus was a refugee. In heaven, there's going to be a wall. Okay, okay. Now, am I blessed to live in America? Yes. Yes, do I take advantages of the privileges that I have because of the country of my birth? Yes, absolutely. Do I love America most days? Yes. No, I kid. Yes, of course I love being from this country. I do. But listen to me. Any gospel that's more true here than it is over there is a false gospel. Any gospel that's more true us, for us as Americans than it is for those in North Korea, in India, in Africa, and Iraq, if it's not true for them, it's not true for us. That is a false gospel. And this is why we send missionaries to Oman. And this is why we send missionaries to Turkey and to Eastern Europe and to the Himalayans because the gospel is the gospel for all nations, all tribes, all tongues, all people, no matter who you are or where you come from. The gospel is the gospel for all nations. Now, some people ask me, they say, Byron, why are you silent when it comes to political issues? Why don't you, you know, speak out or speak up against certain candidates or social issues or political causes? And I'll tell you where I fall on this, okay? America is not in the Bible, but the kingdom of God is. Okay, and it's my job as your pastor to teach you how to live as heaven citizen before an American citizen, okay? And so you don't want a politician. You want me to be your pastor, and the moment that I put my foot in and start speaking towards political issues is the moment I lose my prophetic voice to begin to speak truth and error and to point you to follow Jesus. See, if you're living according to the authentic Christian gospel, people won't know where you fall politically, but they will know where you stand biblically. It's truth. Number eight is the social justice gospel. So what this says is that Jesus died, and the purpose of the gospel is to you know, feed the hungry, help the sick, to end systemic racism, the marginalization of women. Right? All of those things are good, and we need to be working and striving with all of our efforts towards those goals. But a sandwich, clean water, and eliminating the 30-cent wage gap on women's pay is not going to save anyone. So we must give them something more, but nothing less. So now that I've offended half of you, the question is this, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? If there's so many other teachings and gospels that we believe, we need to know what the gospel actually is. So what is the gospel? I asked this question several years ago at a young adults ministry at a, at a church. I came in with a buddy of mine and we asked this simple question, what is the gospel? 
There's about 20 college-age students, 19 to 20-something years old, and they'd all been raised in church, and we asked this simple question, what is the gospel? And at the end, we collected the note cards that they were to write the gospel on, and we collected 20 different answers for one question. 20 answers for one question. Now, now, some of them were like, you know, Jesus loves you, which is true, that Jesus died for you. That is true. Jesus makes you better. Mm, yes, that's, that's true. I see that. But 20 answers for one question and no consensus. So I think this is one of the major problems in the American church, though, is that we don't have answers because we don't have doctrine, that we don't know what it is that we believe, and so we don't know why it is that we behave in which the ways that we behave. See, sound doctrine produces sound living, and the what you believe does have a direct impact on the way in which you behave. Some people say, um, that Jesus stuff, like, I mean, that doctrine and theology, that just gets in the way of loving Jesus. And you do know that that is a theology. It's just a bad theology. See, our doctrine impacts the way in which we live our lives. So the question is, what is the gospel? Here's the gospel. The gospel is the good news that the final and full enjoyment of all of our lives is found only in the person and work of Jesus, that God, eternal and sovereign, created all of this and the world and everything that is within it, and that out of his loving kindness, he created mankind for his glory and for his good. But through sin, we fell. You, me, we sinned. We fell through our foolishness, through our rebellion, and separated ourselves from God. And that God, before the foundations of the world, prepared his own son as a sacrifice to die in our place for our sins. So Jesus entered into this life with flesh on to live the perfect life, to die the painful death in your place, and then he gives you his grace and that anyone who believed in this name of Jesus by faith will be saved and reconciled to the Father for his glory, for your joy, and the good of others. That is the gospel. And that is the only message that has the ability and the power to save and to change lives. This is the gospel, saved by grace, through faith, from God, for God, to God. That is what it is that we believe. That is what it is we must hold firm to. The gospel, the good news of the person work of Jesus. It's not about you. It's not because of you, but rather it's all because of Jesus. And so what Paul's going to do here is he's going to, he's going to address four different types of people and the different doctrines in which they hold on to. And I want you to see this. I want you to look at this again. As we read through the text, I want you to look at this again with your new gospel lens, for you to see truth from error, for you to see who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. So we're going to look at these, and there's three, there's three rebukes, and there's one encouragement. Okay, and so we're going to walk through this one more time. And here's what Paul says. First is, a people divided. For there are many who are insubordinate. They are empty talkers and deceivers especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not teach. Okay, the first is a people divided. The greatest threat in the church is in the church. So people say, people are leaving the church in droves. Not the greatest threat. Some people say, the world is getting increasingly darker. Still not our greatest threat. The greatest threat to the church 
is in the church. Okay, see, the church of Jesus Christ will always have a Judas. See, Judas didn't love Jesus. Judas used Jesus. Judas didn't serve Jesus. Judas wanted Jesus to serve him. Judas didn't give to Jesus. Judas held the money. Judas took from Jesus. It's people who claim to know God with their lives and dishonor him with their lifestyles. It's people who preach and lead others for false gain. The greatest threat to the church is this. It's division. That is the greatest threat to the church. And division is this. I'll throw that graphic up there. Division is this. Two visions. Okay? Division literally means two visions. That means we're on the same road. We started off at the same point, And somewhere, somehow, over time, you got off track. You hopped the ditch and you're no longer on the Jesus road, right? We got off track somewhere. That's what division is, is we're going in one direction, and you're going in a completely opposite direction and trying to take people with you, therefore dividing and fracturing the church, okay? So I want to let you know, here's where we are going as a church, okay? Redemption Church exists to join God in the renewal of all things by making disciples who make disciples for the glory of God and the good of others. That is why we exist. That's the whole purpose of this church is to join God in the renewal of all things. And here's how we accomplish that. We accomplish it by making disciples who make disciples through Christ-centered worship, community, and mission. That's the big picture. That's how we do it. So worship, we gather together to, to sing songs, to take the sacraments, to hear the preaching of the word. We meet together in homes across the, the cities and the areas to, to study our Bibles, to pray with one another, to share a good meal, all of those things. And then we culminates in a life of mission, an overflow into every aspect of who we are, worship, community, mission. Okay, and so that's the big idea of Redemption Church. So theologically, here's where we stand. We are classic, orthodox Christian church, okay? Nothing fancy or weird about us. We believe in the Bible. We believe in the Trinity. We believe that Jesus is the only way. You know, all those really annoying things. Like, we believe in those things. And so if you're cool with that, welcome. We love you. Jump on. We're going places. If you disagree with those things, then this is your exit. Missionally, here's what we want to see. We want to see as many people meet Jesus as possible over the next several years. So we're going to open our doors as wide as possible. We're going to open our hearts as wide as possible. We're going to love to the best of our abilities. And when we're at the end of it, the Holy Spirit's going to give us the empowerment to love a little bit more. And that's what we're going to see as a church. And we're going to grow. And if you're cool with that, great. We love you. Jump on. If not, we're going to need your seat. Here's the deal is we love you but we love Jesus more. And we love the call and the command to remain biblically faithful and to make as many disciples as possible rather than people-pleasing and soft words. We love the message of Jesus more, and there's too much at stake. That this city needs Jesus, and there are people who need to be loved. And so we love them. Now, let me say a couple words of, of clarification here. Okay, if you are a skeptic, right, if you're not a Christian, if you're peering over the fence, looking in on Christianity, and you're trying to wonder, what does this all mean? Welcome. We love you. All of this is here for you. And we'll walk with you. We'll ask whatever questions we have for, with you. Like we'll, we'll doubt together. We'll worship together. We'll walk together. That's amazing. We're here for you. 
Okay? And so let me say this as well, that there are some lines that we don't cross. So for us, the gospel is a close-handed issue, right? So we might disagree on things, and that's fine. Disagreement does not mean division. Okay, you can have unity without uniformity. We don't have to be the exact same person. We don't even have to believe the same things on certain things. But for us, the gospel is a close-handed issue. There's some lines you don't cross. There are some ditches you don't play in. And for us, that is the message of the gospel. Now, from what I can tell, we've had no signs of division in our church. Praise God for that. Praise God for that. So I want to thank you. I want to thank you for loving your church. I want to thank you for seeking unity. I want to thank you for for praying for your church. But guys, we do need to be on guard, and we do need to be alert against false doctrines so that way we can love each other well, okay? The second thing he tells us is this, is the people deceived. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always evil beasts, liars, and lazy gluttons. And this testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they might be sound in faith, not devoting themselves with Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away. Now, what's funny about this is that the nature of deception is you don't recognize you're deceived. That's just kind of how deception works, right? You don't know that you're deceived because you're deceived, Okay, and and here's, here's what's also interesting to note, is this idea of deception goes hand in hand with devotion, that people are devoted to their deception. And here he's talking specifically about the Cretans, okay, and, and this all might just come into picture for you, you might just snap and everything's going to make sense. Guys, have you ever done something particularly disgusting or vile and someone says, you're acting like a Cretan? Now you know who we're working with at the church in Crete. That's where they get the word from. So Cretans were known for being violent, for being sexually deviant, for being drunks, and they were devoted to that as their culture. That's who they were. That's what they celebrated. That's what was to be expected. Now, we can look at the Cretans, and, and we could fall victim to what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery. We can think, oh, well, what, well, you know, what primitive people? We've evolved so, for, so far beyond that. Look at us as a society. Like We're better than they are. Are we really, are we really better than the Cretans? I mean, do we still lie? Yes. Have you said something that you wanted people to like you? Have you done something because you think this will make you feel accepted or welcomed? Yes. Are we still liars? Yes. Are we still evil beasts? Do we demean and demoralize women? Do we use our positions of privilege to lord and empower over other people? Yes, we do. Are we lazy? Let's be honest, we're a little lazy. We're a little lazy. I mean, we have TVs that don't even need remotes. We just yell at them. (laughs) We're a little lazy. And lastly, lastly, are, are we gluttons? Now, before you think food, don't think food, think pleasure. Think pleasure. This will make me happy. This will give me satisfaction. If it feels good, do it. Whatever you want. And we see this in marketings and advertisements. They show us a picture of someone who's way too happy for the product they're buying. And they say, 25% off. Three easy payments of $99.99. Buy now. And we do. And we buy. And everyone's depressed. Everyone's in debt. And everyone's deceived and devoted to culture. And we don't even realize it. We are still a people who are deceived. Paul moves on, and he calls a people who are defiled. 
To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and to the unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both in their minds and their consciousness, they are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. What Paul is speaking here is he's speaking of our nature. He says our mind and our consciousness. That is our very essence and core of our being is crooked. That we are bent in towards sin and self. That no one seeks God, no one desires God, no one wants to have a relationship with God. That even on our best day, we are still miles away from the glory of God. That nothing you do, nothing you say, nothing you touch, nothing you taste could ever bring glory and honor to God apart from Jesus. That Jesus enters into our life and he changes who we are. See, for people who are defiled, I want you to know this. Jesus makes you pure. That the blood of Jesus washes away all your sins. And the idea that Paul's speaking here is that of imputed righteousness. Okay, it's a doctrine of imputed righteousness. And here's what it is. Is that Jesus took your sins and gives you his sinlessness. That Jesus takes your old life, and he gives you a new life. That Jesus takes your old heart, and he gives you a new heart. That Jesus will take your disgrace, and he will give you his grace. And that where we were a people who were defiled, now we're a people who have been delivered. And this is the last thing that he tells us, a people who are delivered. But as for you, Teach what accords with sound doctrine. And ultimately, what all of this leads to is it leads to our deliverance, okay? That, that we don't have to be divisive. We don't have to be deceived. We don't have to be defiled because you get to be a person who has been delivered because of the work of Jesus, okay? So and now, I want to encourage you in this because where there is no encouragement, there is no gospel being preached. And while, yes, we had some confrontation, what I want to do right now is I want to encourage you to build you up and then to give you some reconciliation. But if all I did was stand here on this stage and tell you what you want to hear, then that's not going to equip you to deal with the sufferings and struggles of this world. Like you do know there are other verses than John 3.16, right? And so sometimes we have to say tough words, but that's okay because it makes us tough people. But soft words make hard hearts. And so I want to encourage you with this. Now, some of you are here today, and you might be hearing this, and you're thinking, Lord, I am divisive. I have been divisive. I want you to know that where you were divided in Christ, you are united. That you are un- united to God as Father. And then you're un- united to us as a church as brothers and sisters that you don't have to go through life alone, that you have a relationship with God as Father and with us as brothers and sisters. So where there was separation, now there is reconciliation because of the work of Jesus. Or maybe you're here today and you say, Lord, I I know that I've been deceived. I have said things that were untrue. I've done things I should not do. I've believed things that were false. I've been devoted to culture. I've been devoted to opinions. I know that I'm someone who has been deceived. Good news is Jesus still opens blind eyes. That Jesus still raises the dead to life. 
that Jesus still sets the captives free. That you don't have to be deceived because you have been delivered. Or maybe, lastly, you feel defiled, like you're dirty, like you're defiled, and all you are is the worst day of your life. All you are is the worst things that people have said about you, that that's who you are. I want you to know, in Christ, that's not who you are anymore. In Christ, you have been delivered. You've been delivered. See, Jesus sets us free. Jesus sets us free. Jesus saves us from our sins. Jesus saves us from our shame. Jesus saves us from our separation. And Jesus sets us free. Redemption. We are a people of whom have been set free. We've been set free to live free, to be free, and to set others free. See, doctrine and theology are not rules and regulations. Here's what doctrine is. The declaration of your freedom. That is what doctrine is. We need good doctrine to live good lives because what we believe does have a direct impact on the ways in which we behave. For the glory of God in our lives, for the good of others in this world. So here's what I want to do. I want to give you five ways to love sound doctrine really quick. First is, read your Bible. Pretty obvious, right? You'd think, pastor's going to tell me to read my Bible. It's true. I did. Read your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, get with me. We'll get you a Bible, okay? And also, on your smartphone, you have Bible apps, easy to download. It's totally free for you to read your Bible. I would suggest starting in the book of Mark. It's a short book, and, and it's easy to read. And so read, pray, read, pray. Don't just pick a verse. What you should do is you should read a couple of verses and then pray about it. Ask some questions, journal, write it down. Don't try to knock it all out at once, but read and pray, read and pray. Number two, I'd suggest reading some books, okay? Some of you love to read. Others, books are kryptonite. It's okay. You can read some books, okay? I would recommend Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. Okay, here it is right here. It's not really that big of a read. It's about 2,000, 3,000 pages, if you're a good, adventurous uh, reader, this is good doctrine. But if you can't take that on, there's a condensed version, okay? This is about 100 pages, all right? It's 20 basic Christian beliefs that every Christian should know. It's about 100 pages. It's an easy read, all right? Read some books, okay? Read some books. Next is listen to podcasts. I recommend two podcasts. One's called Culture Matters by Village, uh, Village Church out of Dallas with Pastor Matt Chandler. They discuss some cultural issues and the theological issues that surround them. And I'd also recommend Andrew Murch's To Be the Church. It's a buddy of mine from up in Vancouver, Washington. He has a podcast um, around the same thing. Listen to those podcasts. They're like 30 minutes long. On your commute, love sound doctrine. Number four, join a group. Hey, there's lots of people asking the same questions, and they would love to host you and to have you. So you read your Bible, you eat some good food, and you ask questions, and you work it out. So join a group. I can't, I can't tell you enough. Get involved in a group. In your seat, there's a connect card. Check the missional community box, and someone will get to you this week. And then lastly is to join a team. Okay, you can sign up today. There's tons of places in our church for you to take your next steps so we can see the church grow. So we can get the function, get the order, and we can take those steps together as a church, okay? So it's really not as confusing as people make it out to be. It's actually very simple. So that's what I got for you today. Are you guys encouraged? Good, good, awesome. Hey, I love you guys. The church is, the church is amazing. So thank you so much for loving your church. 
Redemption Church meets every Sunday morning on Crockett Street at The Gig. If you would like to know more, you can find us online at www.redemptiontx.com or join us at 10.30 a.m. Sunday mornings in downtown Beaumont. Kids are always welcome too. We are Redemption, and we would love to meet you.